Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about poetic inspiration, doomed love, and just how handsome Shakespeare really was. In this week's minisode, we'll be talking about the 1998 film Shakespeare in Love, the only remaining authoritative text on the biography of William Shakespeare. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Minisode 6, Shakespeare in Love. Romeo, Romeo, a young man of Verona, a comedy by William Shakespeare. My lady! <gasps> Who's that? Will Shakespeare. Madam! <gasps> Anon, good nurse, Anon! Master Shakespeare. The same, alas. But why, alas? A lowly player. I thought you the highest poet of my esteem and a writer of plays that capture my heart. Well, this is a movie that we have referenced frequently on this podcast. So, you know, it really only felt appropriate to me that we should, in fact, do a separate episode about it. And I have to say, you know, rewatching it the other night, it's pretty good. It holds up. This is a, uh, a damned good film. I have to say, I'm I'm pretty enthusiastic about discussing it. So, I think Will, what do you? I think we should forgo the plot summary for this. Like, really, people should just watch this movie. Do, do you think we need to provide a a, a plot summation? Uh, I don't think we have to go into extreme blow by blow detail, but. Essentially, Joseph Fiennes uh, plays William Shakespeare in the film, struggling to write the play that becomes Romeo and Juliet. During the process of writing it, he falls in love with a character played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who ends up acting in the play itself uh, while disguised as a man. Much comedy ensues, much mistaken identity, lots of marriage plot you know, and tragedy baked in and lots of meta-referential uh, stuff related to Shakespeare's life, his like world as a starving artist, and so on and so forth. And it's backed by a cast that includes uh, Colin Firth uh, as a somewhat villainous character, Jeffrey Rush as the owner of the playhouse that uh, the young Shakespeare is writing for, Ben Affleck as the leader of the Admiral's Men, the play company that ends up taking on the play, uh, and many, many others. Uh, I think that'll probably suffice for the purposes of giving the the sort of generic yeah. plot summary. Yeah, yeah. So I think where I wanted to start on this one, Will, is just to talk about... So this, this movie is quite funny, a lot of the humor of it comes from putting sort of familiar Shakespeare tropes into this context and, you know, reappropriating them in an unexpected way. So, for instance, you know, at the beginning, Shakespeare is wandering through lower class London and he hears this Puritan preacher and the Puritan preacher is railing against the two big playhouses and he yells out, you know, a plague on both their houses. And that, of course, is, the, is like one of the most famous lines from Romeo and Juliet. There's sort of sly wink-wink references to the authorship controversy, which we've t- touched on at times, though in, in no great detail, on the pod. You know, it's talking a lot about Romeo and Juliet, which, of course, as we have talked about extensively, is one of the most famous Shakespeare plays. But it's, you know, because we're, sh- we're supposed to be having access to Shakespeare's writing process— we're seeing these supposed ideas that like what it might have been beforehand 
you know, the, the play starts as Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter, and it's supposed to be a play about a shipwreck. So I guess I don't really have a, a specific question other than how do you think all this works? And, you know, I, I think it works really well and it's quite funny, but w- w- what was your takeaway from that? Yeah, I, I love it because it shows the writerly process and the process of creative people coming up with ideas and working on ideas that maybe don't work or part of them work and then letting them evolve and also picking up on the external stimuli via osmosis. There's multiple moments where you said the bit about the Puritan preacher where he's walking down the street and he gets the idea, but there's also the stuff from his own life that he's mining. And very clearly the relationship with the Gwyneth Paltrow character helps inform the way in which Romeo and Juliet evolves as he's writing scene by scene, because the ultimate subtext, not even subtext, but the ultimate plot involving the Paltrow character is that she is basically uh, sold into marriage to Colin Firth, who's a nobleman who needs money, and he's quite impoverished, but he has a good name. Her family is like nouveau riche, very, very wealthy, but no title. And so her affair with the Shakespeare character is illicit and hidden, and is going to come to an end, and is truly star-crossed. I believe there's even a reference to it. This is love in a stolen season, which I actually think is quite a beautiful line. But there is this sense of star-crossed lovers. So there's all of this, all of these atmospherics and plot points that artists mine for their material in real life. And I think anybody who's ever tried to do anything creative, whether it's you know a short story or a poem, all the way up to doing major motion pictures, that's something that's mm-hmm. um, and that's going to be very familiar to people who have thought about the creative process and you realize it's not always a straight line and you're constantly using things from your own life and also just things that you pick up around you, which I think well, is and, cool. and even, you know, there's a sense in this play also of the collaborative nature mm-hmm. and not exactly collaborative in this context, but, you know, there's a scene at the beginning where Will is struggling, sorry, Will Shakespeare, uh, William Shakespeare, is struggling with writer's block, and he can't figure out what his play's about, and he goes to a tavern, and he sits down, and lo and behold, Christopher Marlowe is down there at the other end of the bar, and they have this conversation, and this, I think, is actually fairly true in spirit to the history of, of course, who knows, most likely, or most certainly not a historical scene but true to the relationship between these two people where Marlowe was the more established master at this time and Shakespeare was the young up-and-comer. And it sort of has a, a feel of like workshopping a script with a mentor or something or, you know, or workshopping something you're writing. And yeah. Marlowe goes in this riff of a couple different ideas. And I hear you have a new play for the curtain. Not new. My Dr. Faustus. Oh. I love your early work. Is this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? I have a new one nearly finished and better. The Massacre at Paris. Good title. Mm. Yours? Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. Yes, I know, I know. What is the story? Well, there's this pirate. In truth, I've not written a word. Romeo. Romeo is Italian. Always in and out of love. Yes, that's good, until he meets. Ethel. Do you think? The daughter of his enemy. 
the daughter of his enemy. His best friend is killed in a duel by Ethel's brother. Or something. His name is Mercutio. Mercutio. Good name. Will, they're waiting for you. Yes, I'm coming. Good luck with yours, kid. I thought your play was for Burbage. This is a different one. A different one you haven't written? And it sort of serves as the starting point for Shakespeare as he's trying to figure out what this play is about. And Re yeah, exactly. Re-envisioning the maybe not great idea that Shakespeare had initially when he was just trying to fend off... Henslow. You know, fend off uh, Henslow, the man he's supposedly writing this play for, which is also funny. There's a lot of the backstage skullduggery about money and other things. But yeah, I think it's very true. And that scene with Kit Marlowe is very funny for another reason. When they're doing auditions, right, they establish that very nicely, that Shakespeare feels like he's not quite made it yet, mm -hmm. uh, where every actor in the tavern, in the theater district, more or less, is doing a scene from, I believe it's, uh, it's not the Jew of Malta. Is it the Jew of Malta? Uh, no, no, it's from, um, oh God, uh, Dr. This, Faustus. Dr. Faustus, is this the face that launched a thousand ships and, and burnt the, yeah. topless the, towers, the topless of towers of Ilium, which is, you know, about Helen, which is great. And everybody is literally doing that speech and Jeffrey Rush and Joseph Fiennes are eventually kind of exasperated because it's almost a... <laughs> For Shakespeare, it's like being beaten over the head with the fact yeah. that he hasn't produced his great work yet. And um, then there's actually, Will, there's a really nice follow-up moment in the same vein where when the Admiral's men reappear, led by Ben Affleck as Ned, Ned Allen, maybe? <laughs> Ned goes up on stage and does this very bombastic recitation of all the great characters that he's played, all of which are Marlowe characters. And then at the very end says like, oh, and also Henry VI. Silence, you dog! I am Hieronymo. I am Tamberley. I am Faustus. I am Barabbas, the Jew of Malta. Oh yes, Master Will, I am Henry VI. So that was actually a great example of something that was much funnier being familiar with this early Shakespeare work, yes. I have to say. Understanding the Henry VI reference and like also what that represents within the context of Shakespeare's work. Yes, right? yes. There's also a great moment where he is talking, I forget whether it's with Henslow or with Burbage, but whoever Shakespeare is talking to among the patrons and playhouse owners, he has a great moment where he says... I'm still owed for one gentleman of Verona, <laughs> which yes. is sort of his reference, which also makes more sense when you realize, oh, that's like one of his first, if not the first play that he wrote for commercial success. And he's basically saying, hey, you still owe me some money for writing this one. I haven't forgotten about it. You've given me one gentleman of Verona. I want the second one in terms of the, the cash that I'm owed, which is pretty funny, I have to say, uh, in the moment. So there are all these nice bits there's also a great scene where there's a uh, boy, like a young teenager, who auditions and is clearly not cut out for Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter, slash Romeo and Juliet. And when Shakespeare walks out and is talking to the boy, the boy is feeding a mouse to the cat that haunts the stage or the alley there. And Shakespeare says, well, boy, do you like the theater? You enjoy plays? And he says, well, I like Titus. Because anything with blood, that's good theater, basically. And he's like, what's your name? And he says, Thomas Kidd, who 
Thomas Kidd. No, no, actually. it's it's not. It's uh, it's John Webster. Oh, John Webster. Sorry, John Webster, not Thomas Kidd, but John Webster, infamously, I believe, an author of extremely gory revenge plays and a yeah, he he was sort of. He's probably the leading playwright of the generation immediately after Shakespeare, right? And uh, most famously author of The Duchess of Melfi. Yes, so does it... Which is a legendarily bloody play. Yes, I mean, and so does it take anything away having that sort of inside joke in the film from somebody who's not aware of it? No. Does it add something to the people that are aware of it or have looked it up afterwards? Certainly. It makes you... I think yeah, well, enjoy that's, it even more, right? You know, in, in well, that's way. that's I think like the genius of that scene is that's true, right? No, like having the payoff of the John Webster thing is very funny if you know about it or if you look it up after. But at the same time, the scene itself is just very funny, right? Like the way that Joseph Fiennes plays his reaction to this kid who's obsessed with his like pretty trashy revenge play because it's so bloody and like. The kid's sort of a weirdo and creepy, you know, like, <laughs> yes, it's very funny regardless of whether or not you know who John Webster is. Yeah. And I think they're successful doing that throughout the play or yes. sorry, throughout the movie. Right. I mean, there's that other, very, you know, we, we talked a little about about the authorship controversy. You know, there's a moment where Shakespeare first goes to see uh, it's Viola, right? The Gwyneth yes. Paltrow character is like this is the first time he's invited or sort of comes to her at night and sneaks up to her bedroom and, and he's sort of fretting about how they don't know each other well enough to be engaging in this affair. And she asks him, are you the author of the plays of William Shakespeare? <laughs> and in the context of the movie, if you don't know that that's a reference to the authorship controversy, it still works really well because the context at that moment is... I know you because I know your work and you have revealed yourself through your work. Mm. And therefore, I feel that I know you as, as well as I would need to know you. But if you are familiar with the authorship controversy, then that line also has this added funny element of referring to the question, who is the author of the plays of William Shakespeare, <laughs> which is the way this question is often formulated. And I will say on that front, I think it's a nice full circle mm. that Tom Stoppard rewrote the... So the, the movie was originally conceived of and written by a Hollywood screener named Mark Norman, but Tom Stoppard was then hired to basically rewrite it mm. and turn it into the final version that, that we see. And it's a nice full circular thing, and I think a big reason that it works so well is that they basically hired probably the most significant English language playwright of this generation mm. to rewrite the screenplay about the greatest English playwright of them all, mm. you know? And you see, look, Stoppard is not Shakespeare, but you can see that wit and how much he cares about the material and how knowledgeable he is of it. And he's really successful, I think, in weaving that into the, also into the overarching story of the film. Mm. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's very effective in that sense. And it's a kind of a labor of love in a lot of ways. And I think the inside jokes are sort of a testament to that in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. this, this is a play, or this is a film, in which virtually every actor, and certainly Stoppard, I mean, people came up, almost anybody involved in the theatrical arts, whether in movies, the stage, whatever has been touched in some way by Shakespeare. It helps to have the extra 
level of interest and knowledge to enjoy certain aspects of this. But I also think you can enjoy it totally on the basic level because most people by osmosis have picked up and imbibed some Shakespeare at some point in their lives, and certainly Romeo and Juliet, right? But the story yeah, itself is... Yeah, I mean, is, side is note on that, Will, just, just to further illustrate that, I am consistently surprised when we're going through and reading these plays how many just like seemingly throwaway lines are lines that have permeated the popular culture oh absolutely the game's afoot turns out to be a shakespeare reference stuff like that to gild the lily even i think that's from king john to gild the lily that's a phrase i've used a bunch of times and comes Mm -hmm. from king john not even a well-known play right i think it's kind of a remarkable thing you know, and I think that's what makes this film really work is that it can be totally enjoyable for the layperson walking in off the street or streaming it at home, but it also rewards watching and rewatching if you are a Shakespeare obsessive, but can also just be enjoyable in its own terms for people that don't have our sort of weird affection and obsession for this body of work, right? Yeah. And I think it's it's really great in that sense. So, Will, I, I think that's a, a great jumping off point to get into another thing that, honestly, probably the biggest question that I had mm. as I was watching or, or thing I was mulling over as I was watching the movie, which is that I feel like the movie does a really good job of appropriating a lot of Shakespearean tropes in building out the plot, right? You've got the, the, the doomed love between Will and Viola. You've got the mistaken identity, even to the point of women dressing as men and vice versa, you know, where both Viola dresses up as a man so she can act in the, in the play. And you also have Will dressing up as a woman so he can be an attendant for Viola when they go visit the queen. The very end of the movie, you know, where you have Judy Dench suddenly appearing in the theater and adjudicating the bet that had been made in an earlier scene, struck me as like a reappropriation of the deus ex machina trope that you see in a lot of the Shakespearean comedies where God or some, you know, some Roman God appears at the end to set things right. So to sum that up, I, I think there's there's the use of a lot of Shakespearean tropes and concepts and ideas that are pretty seamlessly and organically integrated into the plot. But I wasn't convinced that the movie is true to the ethos of Shakespeare as we have talked about it, thought about it, and experienced it over the course of the plays that we've read. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think that this film really does work in that sense as well. I actually do think it's fairly faithful. I mean, obviously it's a dramatization and it stands with all of our knowledge of Shakespeare assumed and sort of baked in, but I actually do think it's a fairly faithful capturing, not necessarily of like documentary level realism of anything, because it's a it's a narrative film, but I do think that it tries to capture a lot of the things that make Shakespeare's writing so fascinating and enjoyable, and also uh, remixes it in a clever way into the storyline. Like, I think it is faithful to the general ethos of Shakespeare because it uses those tropes so effectively. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think it does work on those terms. I also think that one of the real triumphs of this is it takes Shakespeare out of dry English class discussions of how little we actually know about the man himself and imagines the world that he might have inhabited. And in some ways, we know more about the world he inhabited than we know about the man, which is the point of Stephen Greenblatt's book, Will in the World, is you can actually imagine 
the space in which Shakespeare inhabit, inhabited. And of course, like it makes sense that he might be struggling with writer's block. It makes sense that he's kind of living hand to mouth and debt is something that he and many other people are grappling with for the first time. It makes sense that they're living in a period of political and religious flux. And it also makes sense that actors are not necessarily always the most reputable or beloved or high status people in the society, yet they're expected to provide entertainment. And there's all the vicissitudes of that. So I think there's both the aspect of Shakespeare's art, but there's also the world in which he inhabited. And I think they imagine that in an enjoyable and comedic way, but also that seems like they're actually, they're basing it on something. And when you see like privy pots being dumped into the street and all sorts of, you know, money lenders chasing after people, there's a real feeling of they thought this one through. Mm -hmm. There's a commentary on the art, but there's also a commentary on the world in which all of this was taking place. And I think that's also a triumph in its own right. So I think where I am not sure about it is, and I have to say, it was something that I was thinking about a lot in the earlier part of the movie when we're seeing the development of the love story between Will and Viola. And then maybe by the end with her having to go off to America, and, and, and I, I should note, on the subject of what you were just talking about, I think the fact that there's this reference to the new world and the idea that, like, you know, the, the, it, it ends with him imagining, you know, the plot of Twelfth Night and the shipwreck and a new world that his heroine is going to encounter. It really does speak to what I think probably was, like, the romanticism of the idea of the new world at the time, right? Mm. Of, like seemingly unexplored, unknown territory where anything can happen. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a, a really nice element to it in, ter- in terms of putting us into the, the mentality or, or thought process of the way people were back then. And also the contrast between that view, like that sort of poetic, romantic, writerly view, and the view of Wessex, who has like this purely commercial, we're going to go there for four years and make a bunch of money and then come back to live in comfort, you know. Right. But sorry, I, I digress. I felt like this overwhelmingly positive portrayal of this love affair and the development of their love as this pure thing didn't feel totally in line with, you know, the sort of somewhat ambivalent and almost painfully objective Shakespeare that we've encountered. But then, you know, uh, uh, sorry, now now I'm going to now I'm going to offer the counter argument to my own claim. I think then by the end, it does end in the way that it feels like it has to. Right. It's it doesn't end in a fairy tale, inspirational, happy way. Right. Like she does depart. He is distraught. And I don't know, in a a way, it kind of ends in the same way as Love's Labor's Lost. Right. Where it's a comedy. It's Mm. funny. It's created as a comedy and executed as a comedy. But the ending is very bittersweet. So I think I've actually talked myself into agreeing with you over the course of this discourse. Yes, yeah. And there's a great moment, actually, to that point in the dialogue of the film where Wessex, who is the man to whom, played by Colin Firth, the man to whom Viola played with Paltrow, gets married to at the end, and they're about to sail off to Virginia. But Queen Elizabeth, when she shows up in the theater at the very end, and it's very obvious that Queen Elizabeth knows about Will and Viola, and so forth. Wessex says, Your Majesty. Why, Lord Wessex? Lost your wife so soon? Indeed, I am a bride, short. And my ship sails for the new world on the evening tide. How is this to end? 
as stories must when love's denied, with tears and a journey. Those whom God has joined in marriage, not even I can put asunder. And I actually think that's a very nice way of summing up. It's not unsentimental per se. I mean, I, and actually, when you think about it, I think Romeo and Juliet, it's a very wise choice, not just because it's a very commonly known play, but because the themes do accord with, I think, Shakespeare's views on love, which is that it can be painful and sometimes even destructive in various ways, but can also be beautiful. And both of those ideas are present in mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet, no question, right? And obviously we're reading it today and trying to suss out what he meant, but both of those parallel yeah. tracks are present. And I think that's actually what makes it so great and so insightful and enduring, you know, Romeo and Juliet and this movie in which it features, because I think both of those things are there. It wouldn't feel dramatically satisfying for this to have a happy ending, yeah. right? In the classic sense. It is a happy ending in the sense that Shakespeare's imagination starts to run wild in ways that you can tell are going to pave the way for his future success. And that's sort of the implication at the end is he's going to transform this kind of personal bittersweet tragedy into something that's enduring. Well, it's, it's happy for yeah. us because it means that we get yes. Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. And, and in, and in the way that like, I think so often a love affair at a certain point in your life might produce, it, it was necessary and really important to have even if it didn't necessarily end yeah. well right in various ways or even if it didn't end up being sort of long lasting or you know eternal in any sense it's an important and powerful mm -hmm. uh, it was an important and powerful experience. well and and to that point will and this circles back to the first thing we were talking about about kind of the the dramatic process right you see the way that shakespeare is process and what he's doing is evolving and at some point he realizes, he himself realizes that his play can't possibly end well. And he announces that, right? He says, it's not a comedy that I'm writing anymore. Because he realizes that it can't possibly end the way a comedy would end in, in that time period. Right, right. So I, I, have, I have one other thing that struck very close to my heart personally that I just wanted to note. Which is, we talked when we did our mini-sode on the Ian McKellen Richard III film, and we t a little bit also about this with reference to The Merchant of Venice, though I think our conclusion was basically that The Merchant of Venice movie is not nearly as successful as the Richard III film. But when we were talking about the Richard III film, we talked a lot about how that movie both uses Shakespeare to tell us something about the present and present political Thought wouldn't quite be the right word, but it, it illuminates something about fascism, you know, like a political topic that is very much within the, the circumference of contemporary political discourse, right? As well as the fact that, like, applying fascism back to that period could tell us something about the play. And one thing that I really enjoyed watching in this movie was the way that Stoppard, I, and I'm going to say Stoppard because I think of Stoppard as probably being more of the wellspring of, of this, but the way that Stoppard turned the theater world of London into sort of a mirror image of the entertainment business today from like little funny details that are kind of in-jokes for people who work in entertainment, right? Like where... Shakespeare is on the punt going up the Thames 
And I think actually the, the guy who's rowing his boat is Stoppard. I believe that Stoppard actually played that character. And when he <laughs> arrives at the house where Viola lives, the guy who says, oh, I had that Christopher Marlowe in my boat once. And then like pulls out a play that he's written and is asking Will if he can show the play to some of his printer friends. You know, so there, that, there's that sort of like minor thing. But then actually there's also like a little bit about the business of like, and you got into this a little bit about the actors aren't very reputable. They're in debt. He's always looking for money. There's all that. But there's also this thing about, you know, you have to appease the star. So even though Will knows that the play that he's writing is about Romeo and Juliet and that Romeo and Juliet are the main characters, he tells the Ben Affleck character that actually the title of the play is Mercutio because Ben Affleck is sort of the big star of the Admiral's Men and, you know, needs his vanity to be appeased. Or, you know, or you have, you know, Henslow, who's in debt, and so he ends up inviting his creditor to sort of go in with him on the profits for the play. So there's there's this whole thing about the way that the theater world... You know, which I think I think the tendency today is to think of the theater world in Shakespeare's time as this very august and inaccessible thing. And it does a really good job of sort of re-portraying it and re-centering it as something that is very familiar, even if it just takes a different form. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's some great moments in there. Uh, I believe it's Tom Wilkinson that's playing the main creditor to the Jeffrey Rush character. And the film, in fact, I believe opens with him literally holding, yeah, holding his feet uh, to the fire Jeffrey Rush's feet to the fire trying to extract some money from him but there's a great moment where Jeffrey Rush is talking to Wilkinson and it's the first day of rehearsals and Shakespeare is up there making a speech to the actors and Wilkinson's character is like what is this and Jeffrey Rush says well he's like the actors he's like it's traditional for the writer to give a speech on the first day you know the, the writers like it and then later on Wilkinson cuts off Shakespeare jumps up and is saying listen you bums this is a money-making enterprise and is going on and on and then the Affleck character comes in and sort of cows Wilkinson (laughs) and is yelling at him and is sort of getting up in his face after giving his theatrical recitation of all the roles that he's played and Wilkinson sort of is cowed and says uh I'm 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 the money uh I'm the money and he says good you may remain as long as you are silent what is the play and what is my part uh, one moment, sir. Who are you? I'm, um... I'm the money. Then you may remain, so long as you remain silent. Pay attention. You will see how genius creates a legend. Thank you, sir. And there's that tension between the star and the producer. Yeah. And then there's, a, there's that very nice moment later on where... Henslow, the Jeffrey Rush character Henslow, is speaking with someone in the, about, like, money stuff in the middle of, of a rehearsal... And then it's Wilkinson who's like, silence, get out. You know, sort of now it's Wilkinson who's become the protector of the sanctity of the art kind of. (laughs) And that is actually like, that is sort of a trope in Hollywood as well of like the money that becomes enamored of the art that they're involved in, you you know. It stops just becoming an investment for some people and starts becoming a thing that they want to actually see, they believe yeah, in it exactly, at some level, exactly. right? Uh, which is um, kind of amazing. Or another watch. example of this too, it just in terms of like the humanizing of it, you know, there's this moment where you're seeing a rehearsal of the very beginning of Romeo and Juliet with the conflict between the Capulet servants and the Montague servants. And one of them delivers a line reading in some way and the Ben Affleck character, Ned, breaks character and is like, 
are you going to do it like that? <laughs> you know, so you get a sense of the like the camaraderie and the way that these actors are interacting in a very human way. Yeah. So, the, yeah, yeah, that absolutely. was something that I really appreciated. And then one other thing, uh, which is not related to this at all, Will, but that I did want to note and that I think I appreciated much more watching now having read, you know, a lot of these plays and getting gotten into Shakespeare's writing and verse is how in love this movie is with Shakespeare's language and how it really mm. makes it comprehensible and also, you know, through the use of music, through the way the line readings are done, goes out of its way to show you how beautiful it sounds. I, I don't know if you noticed that as well or if you had the same reaction, but... Oh, yeah. Well, I think even that one line I quoted, love in a stolen season, I don't even think it's necessarily a Shakespearean line per se, but it is a beautiful bit of dialogue. There's an inflection at certain moments of this where it's not just Shakespeare's language, but there's a sort of attention to the way things are expressed that has a Shakespearean inflection, which I think is actually quite Mm -hmm. beautiful. And of course, there's the process by which many of these lines are generated. You're sort of seeing paraphrased versions of them appear in the world those lines stick in Shakespeare's head and he reconstitutes them on the page as dialogue for his characters which is really cool and goes back to sort of where we started of of the creative process being captured in a very winsome and enjoyable and kind of true Mm -hmm. way but thought for you James as we sort of wrap up here and it's kind of an exit question related to the Hollywood aspect of this film and also the comparative merits of uh, 1998 in film, which had a truly great series of films nominated for Academy Awards and for Best Picture that year. So infamously, according to some, this film beat out Saving Private Ryan for Best Picture in 1998, or at the, the Academy Awards, which would have been held in 1999, I guess. Personally, well, let me, let me formulate it as a question. Do you think of the films nominated that year, and specifically vis-a-vis Saving Private Ryan, that this film should have been Best Picture? So, you're really putting me on the spot with this, Will. And I don't even know that I would have argued that Saving Private Ryan would be the best alternative to Shakespeare in Love. That year had Elizabeth, my mom, by the way. Great movie. Great shout movie. out to my yeah. mom who basically hates Shakespeare in Love. And I've been like desperately trying to get my mother now for years to reconsider her very, very hot take about Shakespeare in Love. But more or less doesn't like Shakespeare in Love because she liked Elizabeth so much more and is like offended yeah. that Shakespeare in Love beat Elizabeth for Best Picture. So mom, I'm talking to you. You need to watch Shakespeare in Love again. <laughs> I, I will say I love Elizabeth, and it's definitely a film that I grew up watching, strangely enough, but a fantastic, mm-hmm. fantastic film, and definitely better than Saving Private Ryan, to tip my <laughs> hand a little bit, uh, also, uh, to, to show you yeah. where I'm going. With this you you also had, as you said, Saving Private Ryan. The Thin Red Line was this year, which I, I know you don't love, Will. I really like that movie. And then also The Truman Show was that year, and The Truman Show wasn't even nominated for Best Picture, and I think The Truman Show is That's a fantastic right. film. So... All that being said, if you're going to put me on the spot, I would say I would probably still go with Shakespeare in Love as my Mm. favorite of this group of films. You know, I think the movie is fantastic. I think comedies are not sufficiently honored by the Academy. And And I think there's, you know, I think there's reason for that. I think often comedies don't have the same ambitions, the same dramatic ambitions that 
dramas do. This movie, I think, does, and I think executes. It's incredibly... I mean, the screenplay is just is masterful, really well directed by John Madden, really quite beautiful by the time you get to the end of it. So anyway, to, to give the short answer to your question, I, I would I think I would say Shakespeare in Love was the, the one I would choose. Yeah, I, I concur with that vis-a-vis Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I mean, it's amazing when you look back on some of these films, because some of these, this was a very good year, I think, with some notable exceptions, but I think it was a good year for the movies in general. Some of these films I don't think hold up. Like Life is Beautiful, I don't think holds up, which was nominated, which is sort of a comedy, but also set with a backdrop of the Holocaust. Pretty grim viewing, and I I don't think it's a very good film, thinking back on it now. Elizabeth gives me pause, because I have a lot of affection for that film. I also think it's like superlatively made, and it also comports with various uh, worldview things that I hold quite deeply. So in that sense, it's got a special place in my imagination. But vis-a-vis Saving Private Ryan, I definitely support Shakespeare in Love. The first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan are obviously incredibly intense and visceral. And, And obviously, it's a good to great film in its own right. But I think Shakespeare in Love is more even overall, and it has a consistently higher quality, I think, than Saving Private Ryan, which you know, I think is a little bit more conventional the longer you watch it. And I think a lot of the people that are the defenders of it are probably like the 14 or 15-year-old Will Quinn in high school with his buddies watching like Goodfellas and thinking it's just an awesome gangster Mm -hmm. movie without necessarily probing the depths of what's actually being said and really questioning whether or not it's well-made or has anything to say. I think Saving Private Ryan's really good, but I also think it's a very conventional, very sentimental war movie at the end of the day, despite the fact that it shows war in a very uh, brutal and unsentimental fashion. It's a very straightforward story. Mm-hmm. This one is, it's not just that it's more complex, and it's not just that it covers, uh, Shakespeare in Love, that is, it's not just that it's more complex, and it's not just that it, it covers sort of a subject that I'm very interested in. I just think it's it's really well written, it's really well acted, it's surprising, it's enjoyable, it rewards watching again and again, and it also has some, I think, important and profound things to say about the creative process and about art and show business, which, you know, maybe that's a little solipsistic for Hollywood to reward that, but I actually think that there's a lot of um, relevance to this film, and and I think it deserved Best Picture vis-a-vis Saving Private Ryan. Elizabeth, maybe a different question. <laughs> you, you and my mom can uh, can live on that island by yourselves, Will. I, I am I, ambivalent, ambivalent. I would say to give my full accounting on that decision, but I, I like this one a lot, as as we said at the outset. On that note, Will, can I offer a Shakespeare in Love, but not sh- exactly Shakespeare related recommendation? Please. I would recommend to anyone the plays of Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard, the co-writer of this film, and uh, as I said before, probably the most significant English language playwright of this generation. In particular, you know, he's one of his most famous plays, probably his most famous play is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, which of course takes as its point of departure two minor characters from Hamlet. But my personal favorite is his play Arcadia which is set in, I think it's in the late 19th century. I mm-hmm. might be wrong about that. Uh, it's been a long time since I read it, but I, I, an absolutely delightful pastoral comedy that is also quite 
profound and intellectually stimulating. Excellent. Well. And highly recommend him to uh, to anyone who is a, a lover of wordplay and funny situations and creative uses of the English language. Great. So James, give us that recommendation one more time. That is the plays of Tom Stoppard and specifically Arcadia. And that's our show. Next time, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming in the plays. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line.